0: Well, you know, it's it's one thing, uh, for sure, I've spent plenty of time in the past talking about fear, both good and bad. You know, uh, we should have a healthy fear of the Lord, but sometimes fear can be a a bad driving force, too. Uh, Left the church fairly late last night, was heading home, it was completely dark, and I get over here on 279, heading towards home, and all of a sudden, I, I looked away, I have to admit, I looked at my phone for a minute, you know, and... All of a sudden, wham, and just sounded like something was getting ripped out underneath my, my van. And I kind of slowed down. It seemed like it was still driving fine. So I went down a ways, pulled in, went back to see what it was. You know, the guys, you know, most ladies, like, it's dark. I'm not getting out anyway. As long as it keeps driving, I'm going. Those guys like, let's figure out what just happened there. So I turn around and get back there, and I come up on what I should have guessed is an armadillo who is on all fours, and he was doing this number, you know, and I won't go into gory detail, but he was—it uh, was not his best day. I will tell you that. Um, and he—and you know—if you don't know about armadillos, they can really jump. And that shell—I mean, people have talked about them like literally raising the floor in their vehicle. They can—they have a lot of force. So it—I was fortunate; it didn't <laughs> cause me a wreck. But I'm looking at him, and as I'm sitting—I'm sitting in the car. I've got the headlights on. Nobody's coming behind me because it's late. I'm looking at him, feeling start, starting to feel kind of bad for him because he's still alive and he's—he's he's moving around, thinking, you know, I could get out. and I could just. Nudge him over and maybe give him a chance to get to the ditch so he doesn't get hit again. And I start thinking, you know, it's just, that's awful. Be laying there and just waiting for the next car to come because he's right in the wrong, I mean, the wrong spot for sure. Um, he's definitely going to get hit again. About the time I'm, I'm having this conversation, I think, you know, I should have compassion here. I'm a pastor and it's God's creature, you know. I'm thinking, but that thing's so ugly, it just is hard to be compassionate against something, you know, for something so ugly. And about that time, I see him open his mouth he's like, and I see these sharp teeth. I'm like, no, got to take care of you. I'm I'm, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. But you know, we get fearful sometimes about about some silly things too. You know, just living out in the country where we do. um, We got a new house and it's sealed up pretty good. But if you live in the country, bugs will get their way in. And you know, I'm laying in bed the other night and all of a sudden something run across my leg. And I just, you know, I'm a man, but I was still up on all fours just about. It's like, <laughs> I was it just like what? I was like something is trying to eat me. <laughs> and so you know, turn the light on, and it's a beetle. You know, but they they move fast, and and uh, it was scary, Danny. Don't laugh. <laughs> but we get we get fearful of things uh, like that. Um, you know, and one thing today, we're preparing to baptize quite uh, quite a few children in our uh, children's area today, which is an awesome awesome thing. Um, but you know we are in a time where a lot of people are fearful of raising children. I remember Jennifer and I actually after after Lily Jean talking about whether we'd have more, you know, a lot of the news uh, that was out and all the terrorist attacks and stuff, we had the conversation, you know, not sure I want to bring another child into this world. And, you know, we let let fear kind of change that. And then later we're like, oh, it'd be nice to have another. And and uh, But that fear uh, changed that. There's a a radio personality, Paul Harvey, a lot of you are familiar with, and I've told this story several years ago, but Paul Harvey uh, uh, tells the story of how Eskimos kill wolves. You know, you think Eskimo, they live up there, surely they just you know, go out there and shoot them or whatever. No, they actually have a very effective way to kill wolves where they don't even have to put their hands on them until they're already dead. What an Eskimo does is he sharpens his knife razor sharp and then he takes and dips it in the animal's blood and lets it freeze. And he dips it again and lets it freeze. And he dips it again until there's layer and layer and layer of frozen blood on that knife. And then he buries it in the ground with a blade sticking up, razor sharp under all that frozen blood. What happens is the wolf can't o- uh, get over the, the, the scent and the of that blood and begins to, to lick on that frozen blood. And he gets so feverish about it, he keeps licking, licking, licking until he doesn't even realize that from the numbness of his tongue and from uh, his desire for that blood that he is now... Cleared off that animal blood, and has gotten to the razor sharp edge, and now the blood he's tasting is his own, and so eventually, the the uh, wolf has finished himself off by being so feverish about getting to that animal blood. It's that his craving becomes so great that he doesn't notice the 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 sting of that blade. And that's a picture of what the world, the, the flesh, and the devil are out to accomplish with the family. The title of today's message is Parenting in Perilous Times. That's, that's the picture we see when we read about this account. Now, we're going to spend most of our time today in, in Judges chapter 13, the first 25 verses. But this story is uh, that the Philistines are, are doing to the Israelites just like what the Eskimos were doing to that wolf. In Judges chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, I'm just 42, so it would be all but two years of my life that they were delivered into the hands of the Philistines. This is a common reference in the book of Judges, God's people rebelling and falling into sin again and finding themselves under uh, the dominion of another nation uh, this is something that we are very familiar with if you've uh, followed messages here in New Psalm. but I want to tell you that we should be at no surprise right now at the state of where our, our country is right now. If you believe God is real, that God is not dead, he is alive and well today, then you know as very much as character and nature that when the people begin to turn away from God and get their focus elsewhere, whether it's on another God or other things or just simply turning away from God, that uh, God uh, pulls that safety back and these other nations, just like then, come and attack. The things we're dealing with, ISIS and other nations, it should be no surprise to a believer. It's hard for me to understand that a nation who has founded, who had the, the Ten Commandments and God's Word so prevalent in, in every public place, you can get a Bible just by looking on the internet, you have one delivered to you within the week, there, it's just so readily available. Yet we haven't, we're so amazed and people are on TV, the talking heads constantly about how did we get to the place where we're at, where we're under such threat of being uh, attacked and dominated by an enemy. Well, we see all through scripture, this is very uh, common for those who uh, slowly and surely desensitize themselves to the danger lurking, that the enemy leaves lurking beneath us. And our hunger for those things other than God becomes so great that we don't feel the sting of them anymore. We're so desensitized. And the next thing you know, we can't tell the difference between uh, the blood of those things that, are, that, uh, that is good for us and the blood of ourselves that, that will end our life. Satan would like nothing more than to take what Jesus did on the cross and his blood and confuse us uh, with that being something undesirable. And then we chase after the things of this world What makes the Philistines especially important is the method they used. They had great military strength because they had learned how to smelt iron. So they had the ability to make weapons that the Israelites didn't have. They could have crushed them militarily easily with their weapons. But they didn't do that. How did they get to the Israelites? Through commerce and intermarriage. You see, the Islamic State long ago and those connected with it had made statements that they didn't need to even raise a weapon to the United States for it to fall. That they were already on track to outpopulate the Christians. And that eventually the United States would be an Islamic state by simply by numbers. And it's true that the uh, Islamic people were having more children than Christians for decades. And now we're seeing that growth in, in real numbers in the United States and other countries. Just like this, the Philistines, they, they had something of, of worth, of uh, financial or earthly worth, uh, the iron, and so they got to trading with the Israelites. And the Israelites uh, didn't see the, the danger that was there with them. And then began to intermarry, so they were, they were bringing them into their midst and, and making them family. The Israelites, if they wanted a plow or an axe, they had to go to the Philistines to get one. If they wanted to marry their sons or daughters, the Philistines had no objection. In both ways, the Philistines were gaining a stranglehold on the Israelites, slowly choking them to death by compromise and assimilation. Israel was not being enslaved by military dominance, but by spiritual and cultural seduction. It's the same thing as if you start letting your children watch things that you were uncomfortable with last week, and now you've desensitized to it, and you're like, okay, well, maybe I'm just paranoid and then the next week it escalates and the next month and the next year pretty soon the things that your children are absorbing that they don't see you don't see the sting anymore you don't see the danger and you're literally letting them uh, feed on something that will eventually bring destruction in their life to borrow from the Paul Harvey story the Philistines didn't come up and sit uh, slit the Israelites throat they coated the knife and let Israel cut their own throat They code the knife with commerce and trade, social and cultural brainwashing, and finally, with intermarriage. You know, I've seen these things put out there, and it's true. While we have Christians being beheaded in one country, our country is trying to figure out which restroom people should use to be fair. We're desensitized. The The world itself. Something else I had put out there was that, you know, I'm not... I'm not going to pick a candidate in front of you today. That's not my role here. It's not for me to get up here and be political. But I will tell you that there is no candidate, no matter who it is, that can make America great again under their own power. And why is that? Because men can't change men's hearts. The problems we have come from, from the, self, the drive for self-gratification, for pride, for, for uh, envy, for lust, for those things that are destroying them. They can't change those hearts. The only hope we have is for a leader and for the church. Really, it's the church. It starts with the church. For the church to surrender in such a way that Jesus becomes king over all, and it changes them in such a way that others want, to want some of that. And then there's a leader that will actually humble themselves and let that penetrate their heart, and they'll lead their people towards God. We've got plenty of examples in Scripture of that very same thing. Israel lapped all of this up, all this uh, frozen blood, if you will, of the pagans until they had spiritually cut their own throat. They were no longer their own nation, but the Philistines were in charge. They were no longer people committed to God, but they were Philistines with Israelite bodies. You couldn't tell the difference between them and the enemy. I'm telling you, church, until we can't change ourselves to be more Christ-like ourselves. We're beating our head against the wall if we think that we can follow some list from Scripture of, okay, I got to do this and I got to do that. If we don't get in touch with the power of God and let it change our lives, we're not going to look any different than those in the world that are suffering and don't want anything to do with this world. But they're so miserable, but then they look over at the church like, well, I don't see the benefit in going there either. I mean, sometimes you've got worse problems. It's against the backdrop of. This wholesale spiritual compromise that the Holy Spirit inspired the author of the book of Judges to introduce us to a single couple. One couple who had a task that was great. Most people wouldn't think of it as great, especially if you were there in that time and knew the couple. But this couple was set in contrast to the culture. They were like everyone else, and maybe people thought they were even a little weird. But the writer tells us us that this couple was given a vital assignment from God. Their assignment? To raise a child. Now, that may not seem great to some, that seems pretty normal, but you've got to understand that God uses the children just like he does the adults. and their assignment to raise this child, a child who would have a special place in the plan of God, they were whisked away to some secluded location in order to perform this task. They, they, They weren't whisked away, they weren't taken away, they weren't some missionary sent off to a foreign land. It was in their own land, in their own culture, that God called them to raise this child. They were to raise this child in the context of the culture. And this is the same assignment that every Christian parent has today. According to Malachi 2.15, one of the purposes behind marriage is that God, uh, God seeks godly offspring. God wants us to raise our children to follow him. According to 2 Timothy 3.1, we are to do this in the context of perilous times. In other words, we're not to remove our children from, from our culture. We're not to remove them from uh, in an effort that we think we're going to save them from our culture. We are to teach them in the ways of the Lord so that when they're old, they won't depart from it. That means they have to make their own decisions eventually. We have to understand that as parents, we can't put our kids in a bubble and expect that that's the way that they're going to get close to God. Now, I'm not talking about not being protective, but anybody that knows me knows I I border on the extreme when it comes to my kids. It's one of the vices that I'm working through with God. It's a feeling that, okay, I've got to be on top of their protection all the time. No, you can't go out there. No, you can't go out there. Some of that's healthy, but then it gets so much that I'm thinking I can can just keep them. If I keep them in my sight the whole time, I'll never have to worry about anything happening to them. That's not how I grew up. My parents let me make mistakes. So I learned from them. My parents let me venture out a little bit and and make my own decisions. They taught me in the ways I should go and let me make the decision and understand how God's principles work for me, not just for them. A woman named Dawn McKnight wrote wrote a letter to an editor at Birmingham News. She said, my 14-year-old son and I were recently running an errand and saw a sight that made me sick to my stomach. They went through a drive-thru window at a bank, and my son observed that in a pile of trash on the side of the neighboring building were two American flags, one still on a flagpole. When the management was questioned, one man appeared somewhat concerned and assisted with removing the flags in order for her to take them and have them uh, treated with the respect they deserved. The other man said he had more important things to do. Fortunately, there have been others who felt that they had the time to fight to be wounded and die for this very flag. You see, we're, we're um, fighting for a flag. We're fighting for something. Every time you look at Facebook or you look at the news, there's some fight over something, some inanimate object or some symbol. But yet we have kids overrunning the foster care system the, the parents have just uh, either not cared or they've, they've gone through trouble and the, and the child's been pulled from them. And we have kids who, who need someone to teach them the word God, who need someone to love them. And we're fighting over these other things, but yet we've got generations of kids who are being put on the sidelines. If anything we should be fighting for and have all our attention to, it's these children. Again, the, this uh, Islamic State, their idea is they're going to outpopulate us because, quite honestly, the American families don't have as many kids as they do. And so with that in mind, and then all the problems we have with drugs and other things and other addictions and, and abuse and those things where these kids are being pulled from the homes, then in mass numbers we're losing opportunity to to teach the word of God to some of these children if it weren't for those who saw a need and reached out. This lady goes on to say, I was proud that my son was concerned as I was. Naively, I thought this was a single incident, but not long ago my husband rescued and brought home two brand new American flags. One still partially remained in the commercial wrapping. He saw them in a dump site behind a building where he was working. The persons who were so irreverently discarded, these persons who so irreverently discard these flags will hopefully think about what the true cost of these flags are. You see, why aren't we seeing our children that way? Why don't we see the children uh, of this nation that way? Because Jesus's blood that was paid for them was greater than anything any soldier could do on the battlefield for a country or a flag. There's... Videos you can watch where they do these social experiments on YouTube and, and they'll put a, a homeless child out there on the streets of New York and see how many people will pass by and totally ignore them. In some cases, the, or the America in which parents seek to raise children today is not the same America of years gone by. And in some cases, that's good, but overall it's not. Values of patriotism and morality and Christian commitment... Once held dear, are now mocked and even thought twisted logic, and compared to be un-American. The enemy of the state now is Jesus. in In our nation, right now, the enemy of the state is Jesus. Now, I would argue that he's always been, uh, because there will always be men who reject the gospel so strongly that they will become violent over it. They become, uh, uh, they want to sink their teeth in to see him eradicated from anybody's life. But now more than ever, media and government and private organizations and private businesses are joined in the fight to eradicate Jesus from our lives. Again, conversations I have sometimes with men who have been in trouble, you know, the question I'll get sometimes is, how do you know that Jesus is real? I said, well, I know because I have a personal relationship with him. But beyond that, if, you want, if you're trying to look for logic, let me just ask you this, why is it that they haven't rid this world of the Bible yet? with all the opposition and all the fighting and everything that's gone on to try to, to discredit and to remove it, why is a church as a whole across the world growing rapidly, even more so under persecution than, than with not? If you walked on, if a terrorist walked on to an NBA basketball court and told everybody you need to reject basketball and walk away or you'll die, I would dare say everyone would walk off that court. Most jobs, he walked in and said, anybody that produces another plastic bag, either you reject plastic bags or you're going to die. There is no cause, there is nothing else in this world that people will go calmly to their death knowing where their hope is than for Jesus. Now, there are people who will die for their God, true, but they aren't doing it in peace. They aren't doing it uh, saying, I won't deny my God, and that's the reason I'm dying. They're saying, I'm going to force my God on others, and I'm going to take out as many as I can that oppose him. In this context we're reading today, Christian parents are called upon to raise their children. John 17, 15, uh, that, that scripture wasn't spoken about parents, but it might as well been. It says, Jesus prays to the Heavenly Father, and he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. We need our children to be raised in the Word of God and with the power of God in their lives and receiving the power of the Holy Spirit so that the next generation church can combat the evil that is increasing day after day. If Jesus doesn't come back before then, then they're going to be facing a whole uh, new set of problems. What we think we're dealing with today will be ten times harder when they're grown. If we're not investing in our children now, we're setting up the church for failure in the future. How are we going to be successful parents in perilous times? Here in Judges 13, in the example of Manoah and his wife, we find some answers. They were successful in raising their children, and they show us uh, four characteristics of parents who are successful one is privilege, second is responsibility, third is dependence, and fourth, limits. Successful parents recognize their privilege. Children aren't owned, they're a privilege, they're a gift given by God. Verses 2 and 3 says, Now there was a certain man from Zora, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and are born of no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son." We are introduced here to Manoah. We don't get his wife's name, just the wife of Manoah. But this is a couple who is, is pretty much unassuming until an angel of the Lord comes and says to this barren woman, you're going to have children. Now, in this day and time, it was a shame for women. It was literally shameful for women not to be able to bear children. It was a status symbol to have children. It was uh, a normality. And, and if, if you couldn't have children, then you were somewhat outcasts. We see that um, God sent his messenger to, t- to her to tell this barren woman she would conceive and bear a son. And in doing this, God was sending a message to the na- nation of Israel. You see, in their disobedience and what they had done and gotten themselves in captivity, God was sending through this son to be born a message. God was showing them that deliverance would only come through him. He would do what only he could do and as a result bring Nash, that nation, salvation. He was do, doing the same thing for uh, for them that we see. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus to come to do for all mankind, to bring redemption and bring freedom. We were powerless to ever save ourselves, but God sent His Son Jesus Christ to be born miraculously through a virgin, and He would come and bring salvation to all men. For Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, God's message of a child was a message of tremendous privilege. Their child was a gift from God. It's easy when our children start to to follow after God's ways and they start to read their Bibles themselves for us to start to take credit. Look at what a great parent I am. Well, yes, it's great if you led your kid there, but you, you keep in mind that they are really on loan to you, if you will, from God, that they are a gift from God, and he has a purpose for them. And one day they will have to stand on their own, and you won't be the parent standing over them telling them what they should do or shouldn't do. Psalms 127, 3-5 through says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Also mentions that like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. If you've ever shot a bow and arrow, it's an awesome feeling when you pull that bow back, and if you hit that bullseye, you see that arrow just almost silently and hit that target. It's a great feeling. Now, my kids, I like to think of them as arrows. I'm trying to shoot straight; they're not necessarily silent, but but they're as close to that scripture as as I want as I can get them. Now, and it says, "Happy is a man who has a quiver full of them." In other words, God was even encouraging us to to have children, to multiply on this earth. And here is the first insight successful parents are parents who see their task of raising children as a privilege from God. Harry Truman's mother um, was asked one time, said, you must be proud that your son is in the White House. And she said, yeah, and I also have another son that lives down the street I'm proud of too. Because for a parent, it's not so much about what they've accomplished in their life, but who, uh, who they are as a person. And when also when uh, Harmon Killebrew, when he was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in nineteen eighty four, he said, My father taught me and my brother to play ball in the front yard and my mom came out and told me we were killing the grass. And he and he told his wife, he said, Well we're not raising grass, we're raising boys. The second thing about being successful parents is recognize your responsibility verses four and five, "And do not eat anything unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and she shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. See, this was a heavy responsibility because think about having a rough-and tumble boy, you know in that day and time where you're out amongst the wild animals and do all kinds of things, and you know he can't touch anything dead. Now, I don't know about those of you who have boys, but my boys, between them and their dog, every day there's either something dead that's on the porch or around the house. If they see a dead frog at the ground, it's not like, ooh, gross, flies around. They're like, oh, look at this. They're like, oh, wash your hands. So you can imagine this was, you, we may laugh about it, but it was probably very challenging for Manoah and his wife. These Nazarite vows not to cut his hair. Now, in that day and time it might have been okay. Sometimes the little kids, when their hair's real long, you know, uh, they might get teased about it and so it depends on the culture, but some of this was was tough. Um, even when she was pregnant with him, she couldn't uh, touch anything dead. She had to keep the same vows while she was pregnant with him. The law of the Nazarite, well, we can find in number six, and several observations about this vow are important. One, it was voluntary. You know, this isn't something that you had to do, that, that God, uh, you know, made uh, mandatory, but but... This was something that a person could decide to do. Now, not necessarily talking about Samson and this experience with angel, but if someone was to take a Nazarite vow, it was it was optional. It was also purposeful. The purpose was to show that person could give full attention to God. We kind of find the same kind of thing in our fasting. When we fast through something, we're we're depriving ourselves of food which we like for a time to, to pray and spend more time with God, and brings our cl- our focus closer to Him. It's also a symbolic vow. There were restrictions on the Nazarite, and they had a symbolic nature, like I said, not to cut the hair, and this was to identify him in, in public as a Nazarite. Um, he was to stay away from any dead body, even if it was the dead body of a near and dear relative. Um, and this was the sign of prominence, uh, the, the pre- uh, preeminence of God in his life, that nothing interrupted fellowship with God uh, could be tolerated. It was temporary, though, the vow. It didn't last forever but for a set time. But Samson was going to be a little different. His vow was to be forever. He was not allowed to cut his hair. And then we know we can go on with Samson's story. We know that he ends up with Delilah, and she tricks him, right? And he... He lets his guard down, and he tells her his secret about his hair. She has it cut off, and he's taken into captivity himself. So here we have this symbol that was supposed to show the people of God, the Israelites, that, that uh, God would aim to, to save them if they turned from their ways. But Samson ended up being the example that God uh, planned him to be because in the end, he repents. God gives him back his strength just one last time to bring destruction down on those who had brought him captive and had, uh, um, had tortured him as well as himself. The angel also told her that her son would have this special calling, verse 5, he shall be, begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And God intended his life and calling to be something that would be a message to the Israelites. We need to understand that while we are focusing on, on the, the sermons on a Sunday and Wednesday night or you're listening to your favorite preacher and all, your children in your home are the greatest uh, uh, message deliverers there are. That if you'll invest the word of God in them, you'll get God's word out far more than anything you could do uh, by just sitting and absorbing it yourself. We're, we're finding with our children, and this has been a few years ago, but Jen told me about the boys when they were younger. A little girl on the playground over here at Centerton. Uh, they were telling her about Jesus. She said, I don't believe in Jesus. And they, they aimed to chase her down on that, that playground the whole time, convinced that she was going to believe in Jesus Um, They were a little overzealous. We had to explain to them that, hey, everybody has that choice, and you you can't hold them down and twist their arm. But in order to to communicate um, this to our children, it's important to understand that um, there are some clear do's and don'ts in life. Recently, I heard uh, a letter that was read over the radio. The subject of this letter was uh, parental discipline. And the woman who wrote the letter said that she had a number of children that they all responded to to different types of discipline. And this is because each of her kids were different. She said that, that two of her children were very reliable and trustworthy while the other ones were not very trustworthy at all. Part of the struggle of parenting for her was finding the punishment that would bring about the desired response in each child as well as making the punishment fit the crime. She tells, she goes on to tell that one of her daughters, 17 years old, was always late. Her curfew was midnight, and she would consistently be breaking and coming in late. Her mother would routinely ground her, but didn't, that didn't help. And one night she came in late for a date, and mom was up. She couldn't rest until everyone was home, and so she was waiting. And she informed her daughter that she was in no frame of mind to deal with her and that issue right then that they would talk about in the morning. The next morning, they're face-to-face, and the daughter wanted to know what she was going to do. Mother said, you know, I was going to do a lot of things today, mop the kitchen floor, do the laundry, clean all the bathrooms, including the toilets, but I'm so tired from staying up late waiting on you last night, I just don't have the energy to do those things. So I'm going to go back to bed, and you're going to do all those things I intended to do, along with your regular Saturday chores. Well, daughter's mouth dropped open, and she couldn't believe it. She begged uh, to just be grounded, but mother just smiled and went to bed. And of course, dad got plenty of sleep the night before, and he would be there to make sure that all things got done, and the mother closed the leather by saying that this wasn't the end of all the troubles that this particular daughter had while growing up, but it was the last time she was ever home late from a date. Um, you know, we found that with our boys. You know, we, I grew up in a home where he got spanked, you know, and, and my dad, uh, you, you would prefer mom to spank than dad, but... You know, if she said, "Wait till Dad gets home," then you started finding things to stuff in the back pockets of your jeans, <laughs> until he figured that out. I'd find the longest shirt I had, and and about every hard piece of cardboard I could, and I'd stuff my pockets. Um. But the truth of the matter is, when I got to my twin boys, Colton and Caleb, I tried to follow uh, the same path my dad did, and so we go in. If it, it was really bad, I mean, we didn't just spank the drop of the hat, but it was really bad. I'm like, okay, we're doing spankings and. I mean Kayla would wail and cry before even I mean before he even got close to the time and he'd be holding his hands back here. Colton would be all calm, we'd wait in the time he'd go into the house, he'd go to the couch, and he'd just bend over and take the position. And then he had this little game to see how, you know, if he could do it without even shedding a tear. And uh, you know, so every time's different. But we found out with Colton, if we told him he was gonna have to scrub baseboards with a sponge, you know, and clean the baseboards of the house, he hated physical labor. So we just, we simply just switched up with him and that took care of that. But we see in many different illustrations with parenting that it can be difficult, and especially in the times we live in. But listen, I'm going to challenge you. If we don't invest in not just the discipline like I mentioned, but in biblical disciplines with our children, we're going to pay for it later, not just in our home, but as a church, as a community, as a nation. Our children are our greatest hope beyond Jesus. Jesus is the hope for all of us, but but instilling a love for Jesus by teaching them his word, you can't do any more for the betterment of your family tree and the church of today. Verses 6 through 14, So when the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Um, but I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, "Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. Nor the child shall be, uh, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death." You ever remember in the '80s? Some of you, I think it was the '80s or maybe it was the '90s. You know, as the drug commercials. The anti-drug commercials, and there's a kid and the dad's standing there saying, you know, showing him where he found some drugs That where'd you learn to do this stuff? Where'd you learn to do this? And what'd he say? I learned it from watching you. I'm not going to mock it. I, I, I'm tempted to, but I'm not going to mock it because I used to imitate that commercial a lot. But there's all kinds of them. And you know, it's no laughing matter, but 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 the thing about it is, is that many of us want to see our kids do better than us. That's a natural and a good thing. We want to see them accomplish more in life than we did. We want to see them do better. But we can't lead them in a way where we say, do what I say, not what I do. Do what I say, not what they do. I will tell you, you'll get the worst, um, you'll get the worst outcome when you do that. When I was in the service, um, the leaders I respect the most, they're the ones that would never ask you to do anything. They couldn't or wouldn't do themselves. They always led by example. So uh, Manoah and his wife, They raised Samson, and again, we know his story and what ends up happening with Samson. Verses 24 through 25 says, The woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. What we need in our nation is a true move of the Holy Spirit. Our churches in the United States, now the church as a whole across the world is growing and expanding and the Spirit of God is moving. But week by week, churches are closing the doors. Pastors are leaving the ministry because the church in the United States, we're so privileged that we think things are bad for us yet, but we've just gotten so used to this consumer mentality that that we just finally lose interest in church because we're not seeing the power of God move. But that starts with each individual. That's not starting with your pastor. That starts with you. That starts with the people of God humbling themselves and praying, and God will heal their land. Chuck Swindoll, a quote from him, said, Being godly parents is no absolute guarantee you'll have godly kids. Doing a good job of training children and teens provides no airtight promise that they're going to turn out exactly right. You and your mate might walk very close to God today, you might have begun to walk with him soon after your child was born. You may have had the highest hopes for your child, but you're not experiencing the delight of your heart, at least not yet. Nothing thrills us more than to know that our children are walking in the truth, and nothing hurts us more than to realize they're not. Great, One of the greatest basketball players of all times, Michael Jordan, was a hero to many. And talking with columnist columnist Bob Green, uh, Michael Jordan told him, My heroes are and were my parents. It wasn't that the rest of the world would necessarily think that they were heroic, but they were the adults I saw constantly and admired what I saw. If you're lucky, you grow up in a house where you can learn what kind of person you should be from your parents. And it's really not luck in the believer's life. It's whether your parents surrendered to God themselves and led you to God. My parents weren't perfect, but I'll tell you what, I know for a fact that they were chased after God my entire life. I heard them praying for me, I heard them praying for others, and leading others to Christ. We need to be the priests of our home men. We need to lead our families and lead them to God, and especially our children. Here in just a few moments, uh, if someone wants to go back and, and let Tim know... Um, uh, Judy, could you let Tim know that we're ready for the kids to come for the baptism? Here in a few minutes, we're going to baptize some young, uh, young folks in this church. And I want to challenge you that you don't just look at this as that's great for the parents. And I, I, I really wish them luck, and I pray for them in the raising of their children to fall God. If you're a part of the body of Christ, then it's all of our responsibility to to lead and guide these children. Now, I'm not talking about hollering at them when they're running through the hall. I'm talking about when you have a chance to share with them something that you learned about Jesus that's changing your life, you should do it. I grew up in a church full of folks that were mentoring the kids in the church. I mean, I'm not saying every person was, but I have people I remember very vividly that have everything to do with God uh, calling me into ministry. They planted a seed and it got watered and God brought it forth.